welcome to What Were You Thinking? Are you concerned about the future of a union? And how likely is a second independence referendum? I'm Laura Round, and former First Minister of Scotland, Lord Jack McConnell, joins me to discuss exactly this. How can we ensure the future of a union? And how should English politicians in Westminster engage with Scotland? Jack certainly doesn't pull his punches. We also talk about his time in office, and he shares an interesting anecdote of him meeting Chancellor Schroeder of Germany, President Chirac of France and Prime Minister Kazumi of Japan and President Putin of Russia at the bar over whiskey during the G8 in Glen Eagles. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival. And two years ago this week, the festival took place in Cambridgeshire. It was such a great day. I have to say every Big Tent Ideas Festival has been one of my favourite days in the calendar every year. So it's totally gutting that we weren't able to get together this year to discuss big ideas and the big issues we're facing. But the silver lining is that you can join Big Tent events digitally throughout the year. And this episode is supported by World Vision. World Vision has become a global leader in improving and transforming the lives of children, their families and their communities. World Vision believes that by working together with children, their communities and their supporters and partners, the lives of the world's most vulnerable children can be transformed. They bring together people of all faiths and none, in almost 100 countries to improve children's health, education, water, protection and sources of family income. To find out how you can get involved, go to worldvision.org.uk. One of the things I like asking on this podcast is whether there is an individual or a person who you believe may have influenced your thinking and your politics. politics. Well, there have been a lot who have influenced my politics, obviously, and uh, you know, my thinking and my judgment over the years. I suppose there's one person stands out in terms of influencing my attitude to everything that I've done. Uh, um, I, I I had some fantastic school teachers, uh, particularly in primary school, and they you know they probably had more influence than me as an individual in my life than anybody else. But there was one in particular, and I hadn't really got on with her. She was my infant teacher uh, when I started primary school. Didn't really click with her. Um, she was the first teacher that ever belted me in the days when corporal punishment was still going. But she took me aside on the day that I left primary school, um, primary seven, and she said, "If if you can learn, you know, keep working hard, but learn to behave a bit better, um, and believe in yourself, then you can do anything that you want to do." And I remember the conversation to this day. It was one of those moments. I mean, I, I came from a, you know, a, a rural family. Um, you know, I was I was choosing even at that age education as the way out of the small tenant sheep farm where my father lived and worked. And I, her that conversation with her, um, as I say, has stuck with me to this day. It's driven me. I've never wanted to let her down because she believed in me, and I've also uh, believed in myself as a result. And when there were moments in my life when I had to make a call and go for something that seemed like a risk. Um, but was worth the challenge. I have gone for it with her in my mind. That's lovely. And that, I mean, it's it's so incredible, as you say, that you remember the conversation till this day. I mean, you know, the the impact of a school teacher on on a child. You know, it's it's the world over in every country, in every village, in every town, in every city. Um, school teachers and what they say to kids really, really matters. And so. I mean, I know you're very passionate about education generally, obviously, and, and also ensuring there's proper support in place for 
uh, vulnerable and disadvantaged young people. Would you say that, you know, would you would you link that back to that that very one of your first memories? Yes, to some extent. I, I remember I, I lived in, in the hills of the Isle of Arran um, as a child and the local education authority sent a car to pick up me and my siblings to take us to school every day. It was about five miles away um, over the hills and I used to watch my father on the hills. He was a shepherd and he, and he also did a bit of tree planting in the winter to make some extra money for the for, with the Forestry Commission. And I used to watch him on the hills early in the morning as we went to school and watch him planting trees in the depths of winter and think, you know, this is not for me. This is not the life that I am going to have. Um, and the way out of this is education. Um, and, you know, from a very young age, I wanted to be a school teacher. I, uh, but I also wanted to use education as a lever to help myself um, move on. And, you know, I, I passionately believe that education is the thing that makes the biggest difference. And uh, it, it you know, it can close gaps if it's done properly. But also, it can it can provide a real hand up in the in the worst of places. Uh, whether you're in a refugee camp or in a village in sub-Saharan Africa, or whether you're in, you know, uh, as I've seen in the past, you know, places in in the darkest parts of New York City, uh, education is the thing that helps people move on and get out. Yeah, well, and you sure did. I mean, you ended up becoming first minister of Scotland, so that's. I'm not sure anybody would have predicted that. <laughs> It's quite it's quite the story. So, I mean, it's it's fascinating that you were you know you were you you were a teacher and then you went on to become education minister. Tell us about that journey. Well, I um I enjoyed teaching, but I always wanted to, I suppose, influence more than the you know twenty eight thirty kids in the class um, or, or 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 the department in the school, um, so. Even when I was teaching, I was very involved in politics. Uh, I, I I led the local authority um, in the neighbouring area um, when I was 29. Um, I, so I mixed teaching. Eventually, I was mixing teaching with uh, political, elected politics by then. And then when the... I, I, I had voted... My very first vote had been in, this, in, the, in the referendum on a Scottish assembly, as it then was, in 1979... Uh, when the vote was lost and I had vowed at that time to you know relentlessly campaign to make sure that someday we turned that round and then had the incredible privilege of of running the yes yes campaign for the Labour Party in 1997 winning the referendum and then going ahead to to be a member of the new Scottish Parliament in in 99 and initially becoming finance minister but a year a year and a half later Becoming education minister, which was I have to say, was the most enjoyable, incredible year of my life. Uh, it was it was a very special thing to be in charge of the system that I had once been part of, but the the, the system that I cared so much about. What are, what were the main takeaways that you took from that time as a min- as a minister, and sort of your views on policies and what what's required? Well, I was I was quite lucky in some ways. Because although I became a minister without any parliamentary experience, so in 1999, when the new parliament was uh, was elected in Edinburgh, uh, the the cabinet had to be appointed right away, almost before the MSPs had any real legislative responsibilities. And some of us had never served in a parliament before, so we'd never been backbenchers. But 
we were asked by Donald Dewar to become uh, cabinet ministers. And he told the Queen that the reason he made me finance minister was because I'd been a maths teacher and I was the only one around who could count, which I thought was quite funny at the time. But he, he, um, uh, so I had to become finance minister, learn very quickly uh, the workings of government and the relationship with parliament. Um, but I had a little bit of leadership experience previously. So, you know, I'd managed a headquarters operation. I had been the leader of a council decade before. Uh, so I was able to draw on some of the you know, positives and negatives. You, you always make mistakes in these positions, so you learn from your mistakes, but also the, 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 the idea of having a clear strategy and providing leadership, listening to people, but also making decisions and being clear about that. Uh, and you know, I think in the two years that I was finance minister and education minister, it, uh, I became first minister probably too quickly, but at the same time I was ready for it. Because I I had learned both uh, the inner workings of government through being finance minister, but I'd also had a good year as education minister in making decisions, changing and reforming what was going on and communicating that pretty successfully through the system and to the public. So I felt that I was definitely ready at that stage and I was uh, I had to step up. You know, the situation demanded it and... Um, at the age of 41, I found myself as First Minister, which was uh, quite remarkable, obviously. Yeah. Um, I want to spend quite a lot of time when, uh, talking about your time as First Minister. But b- before I get on to that, just on education, um, what what were your thoughts, you know, what are your thoughts on the impact that COVID and the lockdown is having on, on kids? Well, I'm deeply worried about this for a number of uh reasons. Um, I think, first of all, uh, any period uh, outside this, the organised school environment, and by that I mean not just inside the school buildings, but you know where, where teachers and others are um, organising children and young people into groups or as individuals to, 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 to learn. Any period out with that um, uh, uh, almost automatically disadvantages those who come from a vulnerable or disadvantaged or, or difficult background. Uh, and to counter that, uh, the level of effort and attention to detail that's required, I don't think has been shown um, either in uh, London or in Edinburgh over the last uh, six months. And, um, you know, there was talk in both the Scottish government and in the UK government about providing laptops, for example, for vulnerable kids. Neither of them succeeded in doing that, despite promises and the laptops being available. Um, and I think the, so I think the atten- in these situations, you need attention to detail, you need real focus, you need a determination to get to the hardest to reach kids and make sure that they are not just okay, but they are able to flourish. Um, and I also think at the, at the top, the, for example, the sort of debacle over return to school and then the debacle over the exams shows a bit of a dysfunction at the top of the education system as well, where, for whatever reason, political and executive leadership is maybe not as in touch or on the ball as they need to be. Now, if you if you then ha- look forward to the next 12 months, the need to organise next year's assessments, examinations, whatever they will be, the need to deal with occasional lockdowns locally in different parts of the country, at, at the very least, um, as, as we go forward, and the need to catch up 
because some kids will have fallen behind and some of them will have fallen behind quite dramatically and their mental health will have been badly affected, then we need the very best leadership politically and at executive level in our education services. And I think we need a dramatic improvement, both in London and Edinburgh, um, on what the experience has been over the last uh, the last three months. Mm. So let's let's talk about your time as first minister, because uh, you you did it for six years, right, from two thousand one till two thousand and seven. I want to talk to you about one of the most pressing issues, which is how alarmed are you about the prospects of a second independence referendum? Well. I tend to I, I tend to instinctively worry more about the way in which we are currently governed than worry about the um, uh, you know some future vote which might make a change to the system that governs us. Um, you know I think I, I, it's now it's now just over twenty years or twenty one years since Scotland and Wales um, not only secured devolution but but elected the first parliaments. And in that time, you know, we've gone through ups and downs in both of the devolved governments and parliaments. Um, you know, I think there have been really productive periods in Scotland, for example, and uh, uh, with devolution, great legislation changes taking place. Other times when political debate has perhaps um, overtaken the business of government and it's been less productive. But at, at the at, at, at the centre... I don't think the way that the UK is governed has adapted and changed enough to deal with this new environment. Um, we still pretty much do budgets, um, the structure of cabinet, uh, the uh, international relationships that we have, and so on in the UK, the way that we've always done it, um, despite the fact that we've had what now five, six different prime ministers since the evolution. And... You know, I, I think there's a real need um, for the for those who believe that it makes sense for the four nations of the UK, as long as they want to, to be part of a union uh, on these islands, because it makes sense to to to, to share our government sovereignty in that way, um, to make sure that the UK government uh, is in is in better shape to actually govern the UK. Um, in these in these times of having successful devolved parliaments, so I mean, my starting point would not be to think about uh, a referendum in Scotland, but to think about you know what needs to be done to make sure that the UK government is in better shape to have the right sorts of relationships with Edinburgh, Cardiff, and Belfast, um, and perhaps you know, regions of England as well, uh, although that's a different a different situation. Uh, and and how can we ensure that? the UK functions better as a political entity before we go back to that debate about whether or not Scotland is part of it. Because uh, otherwise we just have exactly the same debate as we had in 2014. Um, and I think that was horribly divisive and uh, negative for the country. And, uh, you know, I think the next time if we're going to have a debate, it needs to be on different terms. Yeah. I mean, on on the issue of Boris, I mean, his ratings aren't very high in Scotland, which is, you know, no secret and... Number 10 are very aware of this uh, too. He obviously won't want his legacy to be breaking up the union on his watch. You kind of touched on it already, but what strategy do you think he should apply when dealing with Scotland and, and this question of another independence referendum? 
Well, I, I think the most important thing is not to see Scotland through the lens of um, the debate around independence and the union. You know, that, that's there and it's, it, you know, politics, you know, determines that there needs to be um, attention given to that. But the relationship between the UK government and the people of Scotland should not be governed by that political debate. Um, it shouldn't be driven by that political debate. So, I mean, the first thing I would say to anybody uh, in any party who is Prime Minister or wants to be Prime Minister is when you come to Scotland, engage properly with the country. Don't um, come to Scotland headline to protect the union or to defend the union, get a photograph taken, make a speech to the journalists and then disappear back home again. Scotland is part of Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland. They're all part of the country that you govern and you should be in Scotland engaging with the people of Scotland uh, in the same way as you should engage with people in Manchester or Swansea or uh, Derry. And I, I, so I think um, my, my immediate advice to the Prime Minister and to, as I have given to all of his predecessors in one shape or form, um, and I'm not sure any of them have ever listened, so maybe whether he will or not, I don't know. But I think they, need, they and their ministers um, need to spend more time engaging properly with the issues that affect people in Scotland that are under their jurisdiction. So, for example, on the economy, you know, we face, a, we're, you know, we're, we're already having a recession. It may be a temporary one because of the impact of lockdown, but we're facing a recession. We're facing massive challenges in terms of job losses, um, economic growth, the, the, the fear of the pandemic, the reduction in international travel and so on. The solutions to that in the UK involve a mixture of the responsibilities of the UK government and the Scottish government for in terms of how Scotland recovers from this. Now, they should be working together to achieve that and both governments should be engaging with businesses and with people in Scotland instead of engaging with each other in a row over some future referendum. And I think, um, I mean, I, I would strongly advise the Scottish government to do more of that, but I would also advise the UK government to do more of that. And the, the Prime Minister needs to come to Scotland and talk to people, not talk to journalists. And, and his ministers need to do the same thing um, in the areas where they have some responsibility. You know, there's, um, you know, the, inter the issue of international air travel is a huge issue for the UK. We live in an island, um, both in terms of passengers and freight, international air uh, travel is, go is, is in a mess and you know, needs, needs attention. The Transport Secretary should spend as much time um, engaging, maybe in partnership with the Scottish Government, with um, the airports and the ports in Scotland, um, as he does in other parts of the country. And I think in, in the last 20 years, there's been a tendency in UK ministers to be a little bit frightened of Scotland, to back off, to be hands off and think, well, we've got devolution, so maybe I shouldn't be there anymore. And I think that has contributed to the distance that now exists between the people of Scotland and the UK as a, as a political institution. So it was reported recently that Rishi Sunak was going to be sent to Scotland because he was the minister or cabinet minister with sort of the highest positive rating in Scotland. In your, I mean, you know, I don't know if you've seen um, ratings, but who would you who would you think would go down well? You know, as a conservative, which conservatives do you think would go down well in Scotland? 
Well, see, again, this is this is the same problem because R- Rishi Sunak should come to um, should come to Scotland because he's the Chancellor, not because he's the most popular member of the government. Um, you know, when he when he when he has a budget, yes, you know, there are now significant tax powers that are devolved to the Scottish Parliament, and yes, a lot of business support is now devolved to the Scottish government um, and and the, the choices of how that is spent are made by Scottish ministers and not by UK ministers. But the overall macroeconomic framework for the country and some significant uh, tax decisions uh, and public spending decisions still lie with the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And when the Chancellor of the Exchequer, I mean, in this country we have this bizarre system where you know, the Chancellor sits in a room somewhere and devises a budget with his officials, or uh, I was going to say his or her officials, but that's not really been an option over the years, has it? Um, and so he sits in this office, you know, devising a budget, um, and then surprises everybody on the day that the budget's announced. There's virtually no country in the world that does this, apart from the UK. Um, and I, mean, I think if I was him, you know, I would change that whole system. Yes, you have your political surprises on the day and so on, but have a much more consultative, engaged process each year putting together um, the budget and go to Edinburgh and Cardiff and Belfast and talk to the governments there about what the big issues are in their area and what sort of priorities there should be for the for the UK budget. Talk to people, talk to businesses. And, you know, I, I, I think it's... I, I can't stress this enough. I think it's that... If the UK is going to continue as a political entity and we're not going to end up as four separate states or maybe three separate states within Northern Ireland then, you know, having whatever decision it makes about its future in relation to uh, to, to, to the rest of Ireland, that then the UK government needs to change the way it does business. The old centralised way of doing business from pre-1999 is no longer suitable and... Uh, you know, I think that needs a cabinet restructuring and it needs departmental restructuring, but it also needs a new culture of engagement throughout the UK in the north of England, as well as in the three devolved um, nations where ministers consult and, and involve people, engage people before they make their announcements. So they, one, know that they're doing the right thing and two, know that what they're announcing can actually be delivered. Um, and then uh, And then afterwards, go and sell that Go and do the politics after you've made your decisions. But make the right decisions first and be seen to engage people. And unless that happens, not just Scotland, but Wales as well, will become increasingly distant from the, from the centre. Hmm. It's so interesting hearing you talk about you know pretty basic stuff like just go and engage more and treat it like any other area in England. And then, it, then you realise how that has barely been done and it, it, it does seem so obvious. I mean, you know, just, I, I, I get it. I understand the political culture, uh, you know, at Whitehall and Westminster. It's been there a long, long time. But somebody needs to, you know, smash it up a bit. And, you know, maybe, maybe the current incumbent <laughs> who likes to, you know, shake things up a little bit, you know, maybe he... He could be he could he could be the one to do that. Is he brave enough? Can he can he change the culture? Um, I think he should be thinking about that rather than worrying about defending the union in a future referendum. Yeah, and um, just turning to Labour, how re- how do you explain what happened to Labour in Scotland? Um, well, I, there are 
a lot of reasons, some of which lie with it, lie with the Scottish Labour Party, and and some of which, you know, are are perhaps uh, forces out with their immediate control. Um, there was never really enough debate over why we lost narrowly in in two thousand and seven. Uh, the, uh, I mean, the election result. It's hard to th- it's hard to think of this now, but the election result in two thousand and seven. I think it was around or less than one percent between the two parties, and you look at the gap that now exists today, um, and you know something has gone badly wrong in the strategy and the organisation of of Scottish Labour over those thirteen years, and it starts from not having an open and honest debate about what was wrong at that time, um, and uh, and that has frankly that has continued since then. I look back to the 80s and the 90s when we were in opposition uh, across the UK um, and that meant we were in opposition in Scotland as well in the pre-devolution days uh, despite having more MPs than the Conservatives and you know, the, 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 the ferocity of the debate that took place about strategy in the party um, with you know different sides and different individuals arguing we should take this approach or that approach, respond to this government initiative in that way or that way, or take our own initiative, follow this priority or that priority. That level of debate has just not existed over the last 13 years. And I think unless you have um, an open debate that is honest about the problems that you faced um, and, and has people challenging each other with political strategy and really thinking about what's the right thing to do, then you're not going to recover. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, I think the second thing is that we, we've we never really created um, a, a proper Scottish uh, organisation um, for the Scottish Labour Party. So although politically the Scottish Labour Party has existed as an entity now over the course of the, the devolution period, and I'd certainly never felt at any time under any control from anybody else, as a political leader, when I was leader of the Scottish Labour Party and First Minister, operationally and organisationally, we've never created this sort of headquarters operation in Scotland that matches being a national party competing with a national uh, a national party that is so dominant at the moment, like the SNP. So there are both, I think, political strategy problems and there are organisational, operational problems that haven't been tackled. And as a result of that, we've just continued on a on a, a trajectory of de- of decline over that period and unless those two things in my opinion um happen individual personalities uh um and 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 individual initiatives will not turn it around we need to get those two things right if we're ever going to climb back up the the uh, uh uh in the eyes of the people of Scotland again yeah i mean the last labor leadership election was the first time that you publicly backed a candidate and and it wasn't Keir Starmer. So do you think he's got what it takes to win Scotland back for Labour? And what, you know, what advice have you given him, uh, assuming it's along the lines that you just said? Well, I think it, uh, the first thing to say is that he's a significant step in the right direction. You know, we look as if we've got um, uh, an alternative prime minister as the leader of our party. Um he is, I think, in tune with the concerns of people in the UK at this really difficult time, and he's expressed them well over the last six months. And in Scotland, that will give people confidence in the Labour Party, um, it, although um, obviously he's not, you know, he doesn't have a direct relationship with the 
Scottish Parliament elections next year because um, he's the UK leader. But he does add credibility um, and a seriousness to the Labour Party's image, which I think will provide space for the Scottish Labour Party um, to do the same thing. Um, I, I, and I think the early signs, you know, in the way that he has... Um, and it's, I mean, incredibly difficult to become leader of a political party at the at the beginning of a lockdown, uh, and 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 try and make your mark um, over the last few months, when politics and media coverage has been so dominated by COVID nineteen. But I think he has slowly but surely made that impact. And so I, I mean, I, I think I think he is. He is definitely a step in the right direction, and he's given a credibility that Scottish Labour can um, can benefit from. But uh, ultimately, when people are voting in a Scottish Parliament election, they are voting for a government of Scotland, not for a government of the UK. And uh, therefore, the Scottish Labour Party needs to talk the language of government in Scotland. It needs to justify its own election in the Scottish Parliament. And and why people should vote for Labour MSPs, um, and uh, you know the the political direction, um, the leadership and the organisation of the Scottish Labour Party will be what makes a difference when the Scottish Parliament elections come around. It won't be what's happening at the UK level. Yeah, and what is it about Scotland and Scottish politics that you reckon is often misunderstood by people in Westminster? Well, I don't think um, uh, most Westminster politicians, including most Scottish politicians at Westminster um, um, uh, in the in the, the latter part of the 20th century and the early 21st century, really saw the rise of identity politics coming. Um, you know, there were some of us who, there are some of us, you know, who have been talking about this for a very long time and, and, and could see the way in which um, the response, uh, Voters, members of the public, were responding to globalization, um, with an understanding that globalization was inevitable, but a desire to have, um, their own, uh, voice speaking up for them, um, and that has happened. I mean, it's happened in Scotland, um, and and maybe happened in Scotland. I wouldn't say before anywhere else, but it happened ahead of some other places. Um. Uh, uh, people were in the, in the 2007 election the biggest differentiation between um, me and uh, Alex Salmond who was my opponent uh, was that there were a significant number of voters who would have instinctively perhaps backed me and the Scottish Labour Party but who were looking for um, a more strident voice to speak out for Scotland inside the UK um, and uh, uh, and that was clear from all the opinion polling that we did um, at at the time, and, uh, and 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 all the analysis afterwards. And that is not unlike what has led since um, to the, for example, the most dramatically the election of Donald Trump in America, where um, Trump supporters were looking for a voice that they didn't think they were getting from the political um, establishment. Um, uh, various. Um, uh, extreme movements across Europe of sometimes around national identity, sometimes around politics of the right, sometimes the politics of the left in different countries. Um, but people rejecting 
the establishment because they feel the establishment was accepting globalization without thinking about the average person in the street and providing a voice, politicians providing a voice for them. And, um, you know, Scottish nationalism is not the same as that everywhere and none of these movements are, are identical. But the, at its core, um, there is a... Uh, what. What we have here is a, is a dysfunction between the political establishment and centre and people who are fearful of the impact of globalisation on their lives um, and feeling that they're just being ridden roughshod over. Uh, and nationalism speaks to that, but so does you know, so, so do some other political movements as well. Um, so I noticed that you have met some colourful individuals during your time as First Minister. Um, such as US President George W. Bush and uh, Putin and I think even Trump, right? So what was it like meeting these people? Well, in, in one sense, everyone's different, but there's, but I, I, it was also interesting to meet such a variety of um, leaders or future leaders Um and realise, as you know, as my father told me when I was very young, that ultimately everybody um, is the same in the basics of being a human uh, human being. Um, so I mean, one of my best memories, and and in, in some ways, you know, a real kind of moment of uh, of awareness, I suppose, was um, at the at the G eight summit in Glen Eagles uh, um, on the first night of the summit. I spent some time in the bar with um, Chancellor Schroeder of Germany, President Chirac of France, um, Prime Minister Kuzomi of uh, uh, Japan, um, President Putin and um, a couple of other uh, of the leaders who were there. Um, Tony Blair had uh, had come back from Singapore in the morning from the uh, the vote on the Olympics um, and was very tired and he'd, he'd left the bar. But I was sitting with these other leaders and they were laughing and joking and making fun of each other and, um, I mean, some fantastic uh, fun. And it just struck me that here were a group of people who probably couldn't really do that with anybody else. But instinctively, as human beings, when they got together like this, they were just like everybody else. You know, they wanted to have a bit of fun, poke fun at each other, try and get one up on each other and so on, as any group of, they were all guys, or any group of guys might do in that uh, um, in, in that situation. So one of the things I learned, I think, from meeting all these people was that they're not superhuman, you know. They, nobody should be afraid to stand up to them or to, you know, to... To, to expect as much respect from them as you give them. Um, and, you know, I hope that's something that I've carried through. It's something that I was taught as a young lad by my dad, uh, but it's something that hopefully I've, I've been able to carry through. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really insightful. And just moving on to an object, has there been an object that has impacted your life, you reckon? <laughs> well, I went, I... Um, I... I found leaving office in 2007 a bit of a challenge. I suppose everybody probably does. Um, you know, I'd gone straight into being a minister when I joined the Scottish Parliament. Even before that, I had, you know, as 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 General Secretary of the Labour Party in Scotland, I had been operating at quite a high level. And I suddenly found myself doing things like going through airports without security and feeling a bit... Um, uh, 
uh, normal, kind of feeling normal. my way, feel, yeah, feeling my way back into the into a more normal world. Um, uh, and, and anyway, so I decided in, in two thousand eight, I, f- I found the first twelve months quite a challenge. Um, and so in two thousand and eight, I decided that I would do something very different from what I've been doing over the previous decade, and uh, and cross a few kind of barriers along the way. So I managed to secure a ticket for the Democrat convention in uh, in Denver, Colorado, to go and see Barack Obama's um, nomination speech, and uh, when he was just about to stand for president, and I got a, specifically got an ordinary ticket at the top of the convention center. I booked into a cheap motel on the edge of town, um, rented a car. I, I went economy class all the way to Denver and back again. Um, which was an interesting experience because the guy next to me was sick at the beginning of the journey uh, and uh, had a lovely experience <laughs> all the way there. Uh, but uh, but when I was there, I, 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 I stayed on a few days and I met a young Native American lad um, uh, at a museum and he, um, we had a great and really interesting chat about the land. I'm very interested in identity, culture uh, and so on. And we had a really interesting conversation about the nature of the land and the the, the the customs and the importance of keeping alive as he felt his traditions and his history as well as going to school and getting an education um and at the end of the conversation he disappeared and i was having a uh, and i hung around waiting to say cheerio to him and he came back again and he had a, he had a little bundle of wild sage um and he wrapped it up for me and he said i want you to take this with you and our custom um way back before the europeans arrived if a visitor came to our camp, then uh, we would feed them, let them stay overnight, and we would give them some wild sage as a good luck sign on their journey. And he said, you're telling me you're going to do a lot of travelling in this world after being uh, First Minister. I want you to take this with you, and it will bring you good luck. And I have, I, 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 I never spend a night anywhere without having that in my bag. If I travel, I put it in my luggage. I've never been anywhere without it since... And I think I've had a very, I've had an amazing 12 years um, um, since then, doing all sorts of things all over the world. Um, and that, uh, I'd love to meet him again someday. He'll be in his 30s now, maybe about 30, maybe. And I'll, I'll, Someday I hope to go back and track him down. I've got photographs of him um, and say thank you. But it just, it was one of those things that just made me feel positive, more positive. Um, yeah. I, a year before, I had written on my desk after the day, the, the week after I lost the election, I had written on my desk, "Lucky, not unlucky," because I didn't want to become bitter and angry about the fact that the election had had been narrowly lost for a variety of reasons. Um, and I, so, and I was struggling to feel lucky. I suppose twelve months on, and he just gave me that little lift up to say, you know, good luck. You know, it's been interesting talking to you, and I've kind of held it close ever since. That's amazing. I love that. Touch of human kindness. Lovely. It was special. Really special moment. So, Jack, you are the first peer to appear on this podcast. Sorry, that's that's very lame. Wow. Um, (laughs) Can you give the listeners a glimpse of what the House of Lords is like? I mean, is it true that there is at least one person napping in every room? (laughs) Yeah, there are certainly some people napping. Um... I mean, the House of Lords, it's obvious. One, it's too big. Two, there are far too many people there. Um, three, it's out of date. Uh, uh, and, you know, and I think every time there's a new list of people nominated for it, there are always some people on that list 
that the public would rightly question as to whether why they are there and you know what it's all about um and you know i i understand why it has been so hard for now several prime ministers to prioritize the next stage of change um i think what tony blair did back in 98 99 was really brave um and you know it 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 been ridiculous that it had taken seventy five years from Labour promises and manifestos back in the nineteen twenties to actually deliver change in the House of Lords and and remove the hereditary privilege. But um, we now need to take on that next step. And if you know, it sounds as if the Prime Minister might be interested in change. Certainly, the, in my view, the leader of the opposition should be interested in change. I would like it to be done by consensus, if possible, an agreement between the parties rather than become a political bun fight. But we need to cut the numbers dramatically. We need to give them some kind of mandate, I would suggest, from the regions and nations um, of the country, representing the whole country on, on an equal basis rather than being so London-dominated. Um, and and, it, and it, I think the role needs to be much clearer. It is a scrutiny role. I think it should be part-time. Um, with a, with a very clear focus on scrutiny um, of the work of the House of Commons and government and expect the House of Commons to do better. On far too many occasions, the House of Lords corrects the legislation that's passed in the House of Commons. The House of Commons needs to do its job better uh, and the House of Lords needs to have a clearer but much more representative role. And I would, so I would abolish the current institution and replace it with something smaller, more based on the regions and nations of the country um, and with a much clearer uh, responsibility, and I would suggest probably on a part-time and, and time-limited basis. Mm. So moving on to place. Place. What, yeah, what place has had a real impact on you? Well, so, so I suppose the other extreme from the House of Lords, really. Um, I had travelled a lot before I became First Minister and, and in the early years of being First Minister, but I went to Malawi in 2005, uh, um, just before the Glen Eagles G8 summit. And, um, I mean, I had seen I had seen things in other places. I, I remember being in a primary school in South Africa at the height of the the, the, the HIV AIDS um, problems there and being shocked that nine and ten-year-olds were being given such explicit sex education, you know, and posters everywhere about HIV AIDS. Um, so, I mean, I'd seen, I'd seen difficult situations in the past, but I was really struck by the level of poverty and the, I mean, the scale of the gap between where people in rural Malawi are and where those of us who are privileged to live elsewhere are. And, it kind of put everything in perspective for me. And there was one particular incident where I had been asked, there was a, there was a woman in Scotland at the time and she was the first Malawian um, who'd ever come to the UK, Malawi woman who'd ever come to the UK and got a PhD. So I had this impression of her being quite a kind of privileged Malawian, I suppose. And she said to me, I'd like you to go and visit my mother and she's a school teacher and go and visit my home when you're there. So we sought out the village and... We want, and it was a really small, very, very basic village, sort of straw homes, um, and and wood huts and mud huts and so on. And we 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 came across this, uh, um, it was, it was almost like a garden hut, with a straw roof and basic wooden walls and a and a mud floor, and this was the classroom in the village. 
um, which she had started. Uh, and uh, the teacher was teaching, there was no blackboard, there was no chalk, nothing like that. The teacher was teaching the kids algebra um, verbally, from mem- by memory. <laughs> it, was, it was astonishing. Um, and, uh, but I was, the gap between that and where we are has struck with me, uh, you know, ever since. And I, um, so it's driven a lot of what I've done since I stopped being first minister. But it's also, it gave me a perspective on life. You know, when I come up, when I have day to day problems or, you know, during the lockdown earlier on this year, you know, various challenges on a personal or domestic level or whatever, you know, I, I think back to that moment and think, you know, get, get, get your life in perspective, Jack, here. You know, just uh, remember where some people are and, and how, how far they have to come to get anywhere near the level of comfort and lifestyle that you have. Um, so it had a huge, it had a big impact on me in terms of my political priorities, but it also had a massive impact on me as a person. I think gave me a much better perspective on life and I've been much more calm and focused and clear about what's important to me ever since I visited that village. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I yeah, that's, I can certainly relate to that. You can um, in your previous job, you must have had similar experiences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there wasn't an, uh, an international trip without sort of visiting a refugee camp. Really, that was sort of so. Yeah, I mean, and that's of course how we met um, through uh, your work on international development and the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, whilst I was at DFID, and it, you know, it proves that you you can work cross party. Which is what this podcast is. Yes, every day I try to. Yep. I think it's really important. You know, there are things, there are philosophical things that divide the political parties. Um, but 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 as human beings, there are also issues that bring us together. And I have tried since I joined the House of Lords. I've made a very conscious effort to be, to base all my work on a on a on, a, on an all party approach, to try and find common ground and um, work with ministers when they want to work when they do want to be positive uh, and and work with backbenchers in all parties in order to, to, to promote debate and, uh, and 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 push the agenda that I care about. And you know, I think that's that has that has worked well at times. Not always <laughs> been re- get the same response from ministers, but I you know, I have to say Penny Mordant, who you worked for, I thought she you know, she was exactly what a minister needs to be. She was she was listening and engaging but she was very clear about her own priorities and people knew where they stood with her and I think that's that's what you need in a minister you need a minister who's good at listening but also very good at making decisions and then communicating them and expecting people to shape up um, around them. I love that your focus on international development has sort of remained a core focus throughout your time as a politician Um, I think that's and as you say also as a person but especially as a politicianist from what I've I've seen and witnessed. And I know you're also very interested in the role that development can play in conflict prevention. Do you think a merged Department of Foreign Office and um, DFID can help in this regard? Well, that, uh, that remains to be seen. Um, if the government is serious about creating a genuinely merged department and not a takeover, um, then I think there is potential. Uh, There are dangers. You know, I think the transparency of our overseas development assistance that we spend in the UK is really important. So um, I worry that not having a 
um, separate department for overseas uh, aid and development is will lead to less transparency and therefore less effectiveness in the in the way that we spend that money around the world. Um, but at the same time, if we, if there is a proper merged department where the aid spending is still transparent, it would be possible then to ensure that we have a bit more joined up thinking in government. And in particular, in relation to conflict, you know, if we look at look around the world today, the people who live in the worst conditions, in the worst places, with the worst life chances, are and the children in particular are those who are living in areas that are affected by conflict, um, and whether they're living in refugee camps or they are dispersed, you know, to to live in you know maybe with family elsewhere, whether they're just living at home and in fear. Um, these are the places where education and health and economic opportunity and everything else is at its worst. And um, if we can join up some thinking here between our development spending and our work on conflict prevention as part of the United Nations and the Commonwealth and NATO and the OSCE and all the other international organisations where the UK's got a seat at the top table, then we could make a real difference, an even bigger difference than we make already. So, so much will depend on the way in which the Prime Minister and the new Foreign Commonwealth and Development Secretary set up the department um, and, 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 and provide political leadership for it. Um, and, you know, to me, if Global Britain is going to mean anything, then this should be at the core of our global vision. Of course, the UK should stand up internationally for UK interests, and of course the UK should promote trade to the benefit of businesses and individuals and jobs in this country. But we also have a role internationally, because of who we are, uh, we have a role internationally to be more engaged in conflict prevention, conflict resolution, and the development that will sustain that peace. Um, and where we've done that in the past, we've made a huge difference. Um, where we've not focused... I think others have struggled. We are better at this than most other countries. Um, and if we, if, if we do engage, then we can make the whole world more peaceful and prosperous. And that then has a direct impact on the world that our kids and grandkids grow up in. Yeah. Totally. 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 And totally. <laughs> and um, you also have a long-standing interest in immigration and, and refugees, the issue of refugees. Mm. Um what are your, yeah? What what are your views on that? I've I've not heard you talk about that before. Well, I um, I think we're losing a bit of humanity uh, on the on the issue of refugees and asylum seekers. Of of course, we need a we need a system that differentiates between genuine asylum seekers and those who are playing the system and you know need to be returned home. Um, but I think about you know about fifteen years ago, I think we swung too far in the wrong direction, and we've pretty much been there ever since. Uh, and uh, some of the people who will try to come to this country have experienced things that not we we cannot we we've never even seen in movies. You know that this is this is. Horror upon horror upon horror. I met. I went to Sicily um, a few years back, uh, off my own back, um, to go and um, to go and visit the the migrant camps there for these the poor poor people who are coming across in boats 
from Libya and the North African coast into Italy. Um, and I met a young woman there, and at every stage of her journey, from being sold in Nigeria to the trafficker, to crossing a border right up to Libya, stuck in Libya for six months where she became pregnant, getting onto a boat pregnant um, without a life jacket, not knowing where she was going to end up, and then finally finding herself in this camp in Sicily. She'd been raped everywhere along the way. She'd been abused. She'd, she'd had to go and find money to pay traffickers to, or she was going to get stuck in, in one part or another. I mean, we cannot imagine the horrors that some of these people have experienced. And I, and I think while we need to be, we need to have systems and we need decision-making and we need to implement the decisions that we make when people don't, don't justify an asylum case, we do need to be much more humane in our discussion about this and in the treatment that, that we, we provide for those who are genuine. And we've got the balance wrong in this, and I feel very strongly about it. Um, and, it, you know, I, I, I suppose partly as a result of that, I've gone out and I've done a lot of work um, with refugees and, and internally displaced people, particularly young young people, um, kids, and, and supporting education in refugee camps and so on over recent years. And I think by doing that and by the UK investing in that, we do make a difference and we and we... It's not really about stopping the flow of people, but we give people a reason to stay where they are uh, and they have some hope there rather than jumping on boats without life jackets and crossing stormy seas. Um, but when they do cross those stormy seas, I think we should treat them as human beings and not as cattle. Mm. Yeah, that's very powerful. So, Jack, to finish off, I've got some quick fire questions for you. Okay. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Who is your favourite non-Labour politician? In the past or now? Um, I think I think either is fine. Either? Or both. <laughs> my fa- who's my favourite non-Labour politician? Anne Jenkin. Baroness Anne Jenkin. Mm. Conservative in the House of Lords. Who... Um, have I got time to tell you the story? Yeah, might as well. Long fire questions. Yeah, we, we sorry. We joined the House of Lords in the same year, um, and we we met up at an, an anti poverty meeting, and she said, "You don't remember me, do you?" And I thought, "Hmm." Um, and I'm trying. I'm racking my brain trying to remember. Uh, and what what transpired was that uh, twenty would it be 23 or 33 years previously, 1987, um, we had both been candidates, young candidates in Scotland. Uh, She was a young Conservative candidate in the east end of Glasgow, which I'm sure was a delightful experience for her. And I was a young Labour candidate in in Perth um, in in the general election. And we debated on TV, and she had had a very rough time in that debate. Um, And we'd never met since. But we both have an interest in international development, and global poverty, and we've become the firmest of friends. And uh, I am she. What she operates on an all-party basis as well. I know she does fantastic work in the Conservative Party, promoting women candidates like yourself. Mm. But she is, um, I know, I think she's a very good human being, and we have become very firm friends. Yeah, no, I mean she is phenomenal, and as you say, she is. Um, yeah, she's been a total legend with helping women. Uh, not just young women, um, yep. all women, getting women to Conservative Party and encouraging them to stand. Yeah, she's she's quite something. She is. 
What is your biggest bugbear in politics? Oh, I could give you a list of 100. Um, my biggest bugbear, I think, would be uh, politicians governing by headline. Um, I think it destroys trust and confidence in the general public. Um, it's a cheap and ridiculous way to conduct your politics. Um, and I think that, that uh, people making announcements that they have no intention of delivering um, or haven't thought through how to deliver um, just corrodes the system. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it deeply, deeply annoys me. And if you hadn't gone into politics, Jack, what would you be doing? Well, I would probably still be a maths teacher or maybe, a, you know, hopefully I would have been a head teacher by, by, by the time things moved on. Um, but, I, you know, I loved teaching... You know, I love being with teenagers. A lot of politicians quite like being with young kids. They're you know, quite they're good for the photographs. Um, but I, I have always loved being with teenagers. I like engaging with them. I like listening to them, talking to them, giving them bits of advice. I like, you know, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not put off by teenagers who are vulnerable. And, and, and to this day, I still go to schools and talk to teenagers. Um so although I, I stopped being a teacher in 1982, I still feel like a teacher. Yeah. I mean, talking about advice, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Ooh. Well, the, well obviously that school teacher that I had to tell me to believe in myself was important. Um, but I, a lot of people have, have, have helped me over the years um, trust my uh, judgment, learn from mistakes, um, and I think that's uh, it helps build the character ready for leadership. You know, and I think that, that so that so so understanding the importance of judgment and clarity of judgment um, is uh, is important. But the advice I would give somebody is to always be prepared to listen and to listen genuinely. Make up your own mind. Make up your own decisions at the end of the day and communicate them properly. But listening is the is, is is the biggest skill. Listening is the number one skill. Yeah, that's very good advice. Thanks, Jack, and thanks for your time and sharing all these brilliant insights. It's been uh, I've learned a lot. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for tuning in. Before you go, please subscribe and leave a review, and let me know who you would like to find out more about via this podcast. Get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. Or you can email me via podcast at bigtent.org.uk.